Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. All right, so we are picking back up after a couple of weeks of other sermons. We are picking back up this uh, little side topic I'm doing on the war, violence, and the Christian. Now, in all of that, I introduced the whole subject in in a very simple way, and I know for some um, it was, I don't mean it in a negative way, but it was a bit of a disappointment, like they were hoping for more explanation, more understanding of what's going on with violence and war and why is all this taking place. But it really is as simple as this. It is all due to sin. And as much as we will give lip service to that as Christians, and we'll talk about sin, and we'll say, yeah, yeah, there's sin, and we need to deal with it, and it's there, and it's bad. In fact, it's often misunderstood and not appreciated as being as pervasive as the Bible says it is. It's, it's really a critical point to know. And we saw this in our last sermon, that through sin that came into the world through Adam and his sin as our representative, sin and death entered the world, and all of creation fell. It's called, it's known as the fall. Now, we can ignore it, we can reject it, we can rename it, but sin still exists. And out of that flows everything that you and I experience on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. What's interesting, though, is that uh, it is a doctrine frequently ignored or rejected flat out by non-Christians who then have to create some sort of worldview that tries to explain why bad things happen and why do people do bad things. Watch any YouTube video online of uh, people confronting preachers out on the street. And you've probably all seen them at some point or another, but invariably, the same thing comes up every single time. Why, if there's a God and you want me to believe in this God, why then should I believe in a God that has bad things happen? These are innocent children. These are this. This is that. And they, and they all start with that premise of, you want me to believe in God, but you explain to me why bad things happen. What they don't understand is that when they do that, they're showing their own ignorance. If there is no God, then there is no bad. There is no good. There is no right. There is no wrong. There is no evil. If we just exist, if you're a holder of Darwinism, where you hold that ultimately evolution is the answer for all things from whence we, uh, we have, then, then you have no category in your mind for evil. And so what happens is that when a person starts accusing that, they they think somehow, see, this now excuses me from being accountable to God because I reject the reality of sin in this world. The problem is if you reject that, then you can't explain anything. When you deny God, you're left ultimately with nothing. 
This is at the very core of atheism and Darwinism, is you don't really have an explanation. And so I have been so cruel in, in the past that when I've had people who overtly trumpet their atheism and they say, I just don't believe. I don't believe there's a God and, and you're not going to tell me otherwise. I will actually press them on this. When you deny God, you're left with nothing. You cannot determine what is right or wrong. And so when some tragedy will strike an atheist, there have been times in my life, maybe I'm wrong, I don't think I was, uh, in, in, as I think of each situation, where I say, so why are you angry? Or why are you so sad? And they're looking at me and they're like, my mom just died. I'm like, yes, I understand that, so what? And they're looking at you like you're a whack job, right? And it's like, how, how, and you, you have to be careful because you don't want to do this to somebody bigger than you because they might just hit you. But I would look at them and I'm like, yeah, I, I got it. I'm, I'm sorry that she died, but what's the big deal? And they're like, she's my mom. I said, you're not getting it. The only reason, you cannot give me an explanation from your worldview why you're so sad that she died because you can't even explain why death exists. You can't explain any of this, but all you know is in the core of your being, this is wrong. Why? Why is it wrong? And then they realized I was up to no good, and I was trying to get them to be a follower of Christ yet again. The world of Darwinism, the world of atheism is a hopeless one that has no purpose or no meaning. This is why I spent the time last uh, sermon unfolding for you various different worldviews and how they view war, violence, and evil. In this line of thinking, evil is not a valid reality, but of course, that will only work in theory because when mom dies or the baby dies or when you're, you're beaten and raped or mugged or tortured or maimed or whatever it might be, in the very core of your being, you know it's wrong. You know Everyone believes what they want until evil strikes them and they see it for what it is and they have to deal with it. And so the best we do is suppress it or we rename it. And so the whole world of psychiatry and psychology has made massive amounts of money all by renaming the the reality of the presence of sin that produces all of these other effects in our lives. And what's sad in all of this is the number of believers who keep thinking that this age is supposed to deliver a level of peace for them. Some of you in this room are that way. You actually are still believing that this age that you live in ought to deliver peace or joy or contentment or fulfillment. As if sin doesn't infect everything in this world. Beloved, you show me anyone who has a wrong, you show me any person, I'll show you how their, their view of sin will show you how wise they are to this world and how they conduct themselves. Are you one that actually believes that every molecule, atom, and even the space between the atoms is fallen or not? Is all under sin or not? Is everything under the power of sin, the dominion of sin, the reality of sin? Is uh, Satan truly the God of this age, as the Bible says, or not? 
And to the degree that you hold to that and grasp that, then you can go and show up and you find some little baby who's a crack baby and, and your heart breaks for what are you looking at? You're looking at sin. You're looking at what sin does. When you see a woman who's been beaten to the inch of her life by her supposed boyfriend, you see sin. When you see you lying awake at night thinking and plotting ways to get back at somebody, all you're seeing is the reality of sin, but your car is affected by sin. Your air that you breathe in is affected by sin. All of creation, the Bible says, groans under the weight of sin, and yet we don't believe it. Theologically, we say it's correct, but we don't believe it. How much more then can an unbeliever who rejects this have to struggle with it? We don't develop the proper categories of good or evil and understand how that functions. And so we fail to understand in Romans 2 that God says that he has given us an, a conscience how? Well, think back all the way to the garden uh, and, and the tree that was forbidden to be eaten. It was known as the tree of the knowledge of what? Of good and evil. And when Adam ate that day, those two categories came into being. Before, there was just life. Before he ate, there was just what it was. God called it good, and in fact, he even called it very good at the end, right? But for Adam, it just was. It just was the way it was. Everything was the way it was. And then he ate, and now these two categories of good and evil came into his mind. And what immediately happens to him, that him and his wife are now struck by shame. They begin to hide themselves from God, and the next thing you know, you've got murder and every other evil flowing. Why? Because in that day, we now understood good and evil. And out of that, now we can intrinsically sense this is wrong. We can look at things and we can say it ought not to be that way. And we ache and we mourn and we weep and we grieve and we shake our fists and we get ang angry. Why? All because sin has entered the world and sin now twists everything. And then what happens is as you mature, especially as a Christian, you mature and you begin to realize that things that you thought were good actually were not quite as clean as you thought they were. Because you realize that even your own thoughts are polluted. And so much like John Calvin, who the great theologian who said that the heart of man is a veritable idol factory, pumping out idol after idol after idol. And that's our life. And we keep fighting. We can fix it. We can do this. We can do that. No, you can't. You live in a fallen world. And as, as a fallen world, you will see pollution just constantly flowing in every way. But sad is that we forget this. I would argue that war should be the norm. When we talk about war and violence, I would actually argue, and you're going to hear maybe a very different sense of how war ought to be over the next few weeks, but I believe war is the norm in this age we live in. And in fact, history proves it. Why? Because sin is the norm. 
And nations will battle against nations, and people groups will rise up against one another, and neighbor against neighbor, and even husband against wife, and and children against parents. Why? Because of sin. It's a great enemy, and therefore, sin is one of those keys to understanding life as we experience it, and yet we spend a lot of time not thinking about sin, pretending it's not it happening. It also means that we do not, we have to understand that we're not islands to ourselves. We're not uh, basically captains of our own destiny, as some people like to say. We're not basically good people doing basically good things. The Bible says, apart from Jesus Christ, there is none who do good, not even one. And it's there that we begin to separate between people. But more important is the fact that if there is something that is objectively called sin and evil, that something that exists and it's sin, it's evil, it's wrong, then it means that somebody has established that who stands outside of this whole world and we are accountable to him. This person is God, of course. But we don't want that. And so Romans 1 says that we suppress that. We rename it. We ignore it. We think that if we turn a blind eye to it long enough, that will maybe go away or it'll become acceptable. The thing you're seeing in our nation today and the eruption of of certain types of gross sexual type of sins and corruptions of that is not that it hasn't always been there, but now we are calling it good and so the people are free to blow it up in our face in every way. But it was always there. It was always there and it always shall be there simply because sin exists. Someone who stands above it all declares it to be evil or good, that person being God, and therefore sin never can be in the eye of the beholder. Sin is what brings death to all. Sin brings guilt. It brings shame. It brings judgment. The Bible says it brings enslavement, and sin is the tool of Satan. In fact, You've heard, and you know by now, a favorite phrase of mine is sin, Satan, and death. That what does uh, the gospel do, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that it conquers the enemies that we can't conquer. We can't conquer sin or death or Satan. It's not capable in us. This is where Christ comes in. He becomes our sin bearer. He takes our sin. He then suffers the death that is ours, and he conquers the God of this age, who is Satan. But what, which of those is supreme? The preeminent corrupting power in this world is not Satan, it's sin, and it's in us. We work hard at calling it everything but sin, but that's nonetheless what it is. You take away sin and there is no death. You take away sin and Satan has nothing. He has nothing to do that he can do with us. Sin is the ever-existing preeminent power that haunts us and weighs us down, even as a Christian. Even as a Christian, though we have been saved from the power of sin, we're not saved from its presence yet. We still have this thing the Bible calls the flesh, which is not the body. It's, it's that, that remaining hangover or leftover of lingering of sin within us. And we all fight it. We hate it. We, we give up. We throw our hands in disgust because we see how often even that haunts us. For the non-Christian, that's, they don't have just the flesh. They are literally enslaved to this. So when talking about war, there are many secondary causes 
but the preeminent one is always flowing out of the fountain called sin. Never forget that, even though it seems maybe simplistic. But along with that, I want to focus on another aspect, a, a subset of sin, if you will, that I think stands out for uh, a key reason for war. It can be rather complex, but as you start to unravel all the threads found in any conflict, any war, you're going to find at the core of it generally this sin, and that is the sin of selfishness. So let's go with, with that into the, the, the core of my message. In the New Testament, they have a, a verse, not a verse, a, a word that we translate in different ways, but its basic meaning is to strive or to contend out of selfish ambition. So it's not just contending. It's not just having a fight. It's out of a selfish ambition. Let me give it in a very simple way. Why do you run in a, in a race? when If you're in a, a race, why are you running? Well, because you want to win the prize. You don't want to be last place. You want to see the depressed person, the one who hates sports. It's the one who's always picked last, right? It's the one who always comes in last. Why? Because in their heart, they hate losing. They want to win. And also, the other people who are winning, they love to tease you and mock you because you're not as fast as them and on and on. And it's all just born out of that. There's a contention, a striving out of selfish ambition. And this is so common in our lives that we don't really think about it much. In fact, I would argue that in America, we praise that kind of selfish ambition. We don't call it that. We call it forward thinking, aggressive personality, an independent-minded, and such like that. We have all kinds of great names. But once you scrub off the veneer, you realize most of it is being driven by selfish ambition. Well, Romans chapter 2 deals with this. Now, let me give you a quick uh, uh, background. And as I warned the first service, I'll warn you, you as well. Um, last time I didn't finish my sermon, there is no promise I'll finish this one today. So um, don't freak out if you see the time coming to a close, and I'm not close to being done. We'll try in Romans chapter 1, the whole book of Romans is dealing with an issue, and the issue has to do with the relationship of Jew and Gentile, which seems so minor, but an entire book is devoted to it. What happened is in the early days of the Christian faith, as people are leaving Jerusalem and they're bringing the gospel like we know about, we've seen in Acts, it was primarily Jews who believed in Jesus, and they started the church in Rome. And so it was a very Jewish church, very Jewish flavor to it. Then as they're sharing the gospel, Gentiles are coming to faith, but they really were in many ways treated as second-class citizens because they, they, they're Gentiles and the Jews had nothing to do with the Gentile. And so they, they, it's an uncomfortable alliance. And then at some point, the emperor of Rome kicks out every Jew, literally kicked them all out, because they were so obnoxious. And they were causing so many problems that he cast them all out, including these people who followed Christus. This is in the actual history books, uh, which is a Romanization of Christ. And so the Christian Jews were kicked out as well. 
And so now what's left is a Gentile uh, uh, congregation, completely Gentile, and quickly they start doing things that are more comfortable to them. So now after a couple of years, the emperor allows the Jews to come and enter the city of Rome again. And when they come back, they discover a church that's not the church they left. You can imagine that, right? If we left and a whole different culture was left behind, and we come back to a very different way of doing church. And now all of a sudden, potluck is serving pork, something you'd never tolerate back when you ran the church. And the tensions are there. And so what Paul then begins to do is deal with the root causes of what's going on between the Jew-Gentile fight. And so in chapter one, he starts with the Gentile. He just shows that even though they don't know God, even though, I mean, even though they don't have revelation from God, even though they are not uh, people of the word, they do not have a temple, a priesthood or anything, that nonetheless, they know God exists. Why? Because God put it in their hearts so that they are without excuse. But they nonetheless suppress the truth. They don't want it. And so they reject it. And the end result of that is of giving over to sin of every type. And so what he shows is that the Gentile is guilty of the knowledge God has made in, put in their heart already. He says, you look at the nation, I mean, the universe, you see the glory and the power of God in that. But you also see it in your own heart and you say, I reject that. Now, the Jew would be hearing that and saying, yeah, see, that's the problem. They're filthy Gentiles. But then he switches in chapter 2, and he says, and you, Jew, are without excuse yourself because you practice the same things. You're all busy complaining and, uh, and accusing these Gentiles of being worthless and dirty and like dogs, but the reality is that you do the exact same thing, and yet you know better. You have the prophets, you have the priesthood, you have the temple, you have the word of God, you have all of these things, and you sit in judgment over them, and yet you yourselves are guilty of the exact same thing. So what is happening to you, O Jew? He says, all you're doing is storing up wrath. You think, because I have the name Jew, I'm special. He's like, and I tell you the wrong, you missed the whole point, that apart from Jesus Christ, you have nothing but the wrath of God, just like the Gentile. So they have this. But notice in what he says in verses 5 through 9. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, he's talking to the Jew here, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will repay each according to his works. To those who, by perseverance and doing good works, seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will receive wrath and anger. There will be affliction and turmoil for every soul of man who does, who works out evil of the Jew first and also the Greek or the Gentile. He's like, what you don't get is that all you're doing is you're showing your stubborn heart and you're storing up that day when I will pour my wrath out upon you, whether you're Jew or Gentile. They think they're good. They think they're fine, but they're really just storing up God's wrath. They think the suffering that they might be enduring at the hands of their enemy is the worst that it's going to ever be. It's This is it, but at least we're the people of God. We're in, so we're good. And he's like, no, you're not in. If you don't have your faith resting in Christ, I don't care what your lineage is, your only end will be my eternal wrath upon you. 
And all verse 9 says is that evil is a reflection of where their heart and love lie. They don't love God, so they love evil because they're working out it. And so all they have waiting for them is God's wrath. Now, you can extrapolate that out from the individual then to a nation or a group of people in the same situation. So nations, America is no exception, can begin to think that because of their unique position of power and wealth and comfort and safety, that they are somehow blessed and they are somehow exempt from the wrath of God. And they are also exempt somehow from the lordship of Jesus Christ. Is Christ king or not? Is he lord or not? That's the question you have to ask. And if he is Lord, then why do you not follow him as Lord? And the reality is, is that for the non-Christian, he is anything but Lord. He can do all kinds of things for you, but he will never be your Lord because at the heart you are a rebel until by faith you seize hold of Christ and you entrust yourself to him and him alone as Lord and Savior. And so what you see in the nations is no different than on individuals. And so you have one nation condemning another for activities that they do. And rightly so, it's wrong what they've done. You can look at the videos, if you haven't, of Hamas and what they did to citizens, civilians. But the reality is is that every nation is actually guilty before God. Policies are enacted by every nation that are really born out of this selfish ambition that can easily result in violence or war. We see it all the time where a nation will provoke another one into an action and then claim that they're innocent because they provoked and they kept pushing and pushing until the nation reacts. And then they say, see, I told you they're up to no good. And then we go sweep it in and we wipe them out. We do all kinds of things. All of it is being born out of selfish ambition. Verse 8. The nations as well are selfishly ambitious. They do not obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness. Take this same term, and let's go back a little bit further into Galatians. Galatians chapter 5 to a passage many of you know very well. Galatians 5. Here, Paul is talking to the church in Galatia, and he is listing here uh, various sins, the fruit, if you will, of the sinful flesh. The, the flesh, remember, is that holdover of sin, and for the non-Christian, they are a slave to it. To the Christian, they are not a slave to it, but that they can give in to it. And so, how do you know you're giving in to your sin nature how do, you, how do you see that? He says, well, it shows up in various ways. It's not hard. All you have to do is look at the fruit or the deeds. And so he says, now the deeds in verse 19 of the flesh are evident. They're very obvious. And they are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he lays out the simple listing of how sin works out in our lives. Each of us are very capable of manifesting any or all of these. 
Normally, though, each one of you as a Christian, when you are walking in the power of the flesh, it's one or two of these tend to pop out. And what we do in our arrogance and our um, insincerity is that we will be very righteously indignant toward anyone who practices some of the other sin. So we see in the life of somebody immorality, and we become shocked, dismayed, and, and quite hurt and angry over that. All the while, our sin is outbursts of anger. But that's, I've had a bad day. I'm tired. I'm irritated. You don't know how, what things I'm struggling with. And so we justify our outbursts of anger while we look at judgment with the one who commits the immorality. And yet God says, if you both practice those things, you're both going to hell. And that's how we lie to ourselves. We keep diminishing our guilt, and we do this as an individual. We'll do this as a nation as well. He has two different terms in this in verse 20 that are very closely related. Um, I was using my NASB, not my uh, LSB, which is what I preach from, so the terms are slightly different here. But in verse 20, we have strife, and then we have that selfish ambition, and what he's talking about here um, is it, the strife or disputes, the selfish ambition. It's the same thing that we have in Romans 2. And it's really what we have in the heart or the root of war. Whether it's between you and a friend or two nations, sin in the hearts of mankind is what's pushing along. In fact, almost all of verse 20, if you look at it, it is almost all describing the heart of man in relationship to war and violence. In fact, another term there that he uses is the word factions. You see that at the very end of verse 20? If you happen to have a King James Version Bible, your translation will have it as heresies. And, and it's because the, the Greek word is hierasis, which is where heresy comes from. Just like baptize comes from baptizo, and apostle comes from apostolos, Greek words. And you think, when you see the word heresy, you immediately think false doctrine, right? You think lies and things are not true about the word of God, but that's actually not what it means. It means a faction. It means a sect a, a, that you, you hold to a specific teaching that's going to be different from others. And so you have the word sect, S E. CT, the sect of the Sadducees or the sect of the, Thad, uh, the Pharisees. That's simply that word, that faction, this, that you belong to this faction. You say, well, okay, I don't belong to that. Yes, you do. It, it, it means to have a political preference, a group loyalty. This is seen as things like the sects of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but it's also in Islam where you have the sect of the Sunni or the Shia, but you also have the Republican and the Democrat. Of course, if you're super spiritual, you're the independent. That's your faction. It's just a faction. Or on a national level, you can say, I belong to Israel or I, I'm for Palestine. They're all just factions. You like the Bears? You like the Packers. You like the Brewers? You like the Cubs? It doesn't matter. They're all just factions. And as we allow our emotions to get locked into that and our loyalties and everything else, that turns into sin. It's a way that sin gets promoted. 
and great folly and foolishness. And this is what's happening in our lives today right now as we're watching what goes on with Ukraine and Russia or uh, Hamas in, in the, uh, the nation of Israel. And we're, we're trying to figure out what's going on. Why are we having all these hundreds of thousands of people marching the streets in London, in Washington, D.C.? I don't know if you've seen the videos. You're like, what is going on here? All you're seeing is the flesh working itself out in these factions. Go a couple more pages further back to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 17. Now, we just dealt with Philippians in our Lord's Supper. This one's a strange one, and you'll have to hold, bear with me while I try to develop it. But starting all the way back in verse 15, remember, Paul is in prison right now. And so something weird happens, and it's really sad because this is within the church, and you see it play out today all the time. He says, some to be sure... He's talking about other preachers, okay, that he's, have, he's heard about while he's in prison. He's like, some to be sure are preaching Christ, but from what framework? He says, even from envy and strife, but also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, and the former, the ones who do it from envy and strife, they proclaim Christ out of that, there's that word again, selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. So they're trying to hurt Paul by preaching Christ. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and I will rejoice in that. This, this shows me that even in life, selfish ambition is so subtle that it will make you do the right thing for the wrong reason. Haven't you been guilty of that sometimes, where you do the right thing, but you look backwards and realize it's, it had nothing to do about the right thing? It had all to do with your own perception, self. The social media is so filled with this. And it's so very common. Here's what's happening. People are jealous of Paul. They're jealous of his apostleship. They're jealous of his influence. These are preachers. They come into a church. They're trying to teach. And people say, well, you know, when Paul was here, he said, and they hate it. Now Paul's stuck in prison. And so they are striking. Now is the time for them to get their brand out. Now is the time for them to rise up and push. I have been sickened as I've watched so many people who would I would consider uh, conservative, faithful believers who have risen up and are circling around uh, John MacArthur as he's now very old and his ministry is coming to a close because he's going to die soon. And they're just all like a bunch of wolves just nipping at him and biting at him. Why? Because they're all looking for a piece of the pie. They want their slice and they're going to destroy him. And it happens in every church, in every age, across time. Selfish ambition. So what does these guys do? They they go out there, they're preaching the gospel. They're preaching Jesus Christ. And all they're trying to do is get people's eyes off of Paul and onto them. And Paul knows what's going on. And he says, you know what? Why they're doing it is wrong. I'll leave that to God. I will give thanks because they preach the gospel. You know how, how, how many of you would be different if on social media your job was not to try to correct everybody? 
Your job was not to rip on every person that slightly disagreed with you and that you felt that it was your job to get out your phone or your computer and start tapping away and and sending on things that you have no knowledge of and no need to speak to. It's just selfish ambition, and we don't like it. We're not going to stand for that, and so we have to go fix this, and, and off we go. Well, nations do the same thing, beloved. They're often seen to be righteous and good reasons for this on the surface for us to go to war. But then once you strip away all of that, you start to realize there's some whole lot of selfishness going on, a whole bunch of ambition that you didn't even know about. But now later on, as documents are unclassified and things become more better known, you start to question whether or not things are quite as true as you first thought. The outcome is good, but the actual motive behind it was not. And all I would argue to you is that the wise person in this room will watch that as you see these things unfold, and you watch what's exploding on the screens before your eyes, and you start watching the words that are being said, and you're saying, yeah, we got to do it. Wipe them out. Do this. Do that. I don't want my money going for that. I think this. I think that. Ask yourself, what's the wellspring from which your opinions are flowing? But also ask yourself, why are they talking like that? Why are they doing the things they're doing? And more times than not, you're going to find it's just naked, selfish ambition. Go into James chapter 3, James chapter 3 near the back of the Bible. Right after Hebrews, which is your next biggest book, you'll come to James. By the way, James is the very first book of the New Testament written. And he's dealing with all sorts of things in this church of believers. In James chapter 3, I want to read a fairly lengthy portion, but it's in verse 13 all the way into chapter 4, verse 3. James asks this question. He's like, okay, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by let him show by his good conduct his work. How? In the gentleness of wisdom. He's like, okay, so if you think you, if any of you in this room would answer, yeah, I think I'm wise and understanding, then I would simply say what James says, then fine, show it. Show it in your works and how it's done gently. But if you have bitter jealousy, and here's that word again, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. So and somehow that jealousy, that's what Paul's dealing with. He's in prison. They're jealous for his influence. They want to take it. So they're out there really preaching hard, Jesus Christ. But it's all born out of jealousy and selfish ambition. And what you do is you would never admit that. And so you lie to yourself All of you know what that means. You've all lied to yourself. All the way down the path into sin, you've lied to yourself and lied to yourself. Why? Because that's what we do. Because we have this ambition. The flesh is there, and we give in to it. But he says, this wisdom is not coming down from above, verse 15, but it's earthly, natural. In fact, he says it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition, again, it shows that term again, exists, there is disorder and every evil practice. And if war doesn't fit into that, I don't know where it would fit. He says, but the wisdom from above, from God, is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, 
full of mercy, full of good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James is making this very simple. He says, all of life is either from above or from below. It's that simple. There's nothing in between, above or below. What's going on in Israel and Hamas, above or below? What's going on in your marriage, above or below? Is it, it's, is, is it manifesting the wisdom that's peaceable and submissive and gentle and kind? Or is it one that promotes conflict? He says, that's just demonic. So whether it's on an individual level or on a national level, this applies. One flows from God, one flows from Satan. This whole world is under the power of Satan. God, he is the God of this age. We shouldn't be shocked with war. Again, I'm going to say, I think war is the norm. And history bears that out. But we, we should not be looking for peace in our time. We should yearn for it, desire for it, but we must understand it is never going to be there. Notice how he says this very simply in verses 1 through 3 then. So picking up that point of wisdom from above or below, he then says, so what's the source of the quarrels and the fights among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not obtain or cannot obtain. So what do you do? You fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then when you ask, meaning God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so then he goes on to say, you adulteresses, pretty strong words, you adulteresses, that's your problem. You think you can have friendship with the world without having to become an enemy of God. And he says, you're an adulteress. That's all you are. Friendship of the world makes you his enemy. And yet every American Christian at some point or, not, or another spends much of his time, energy, and money being a friend of this world. And this is where wars come. This is where all of this garbage just starts flowing out. You want something and you can't have it. You might even just want vengeance. And, but you've got to come up with a reason. You remember all of you my age and, and some younger ones won't understand this, but the weapons of mass destruction, do you remember that one? And we all were told about the great mass of, mass of uh, weapons of mass destruction. We, we saw Colin Powell sit before the Senate hearing and he held up a little vial and he said, this much, this much is all that's needed to wipe out untold numbers. And we all, yeah, and Gulf War, and many people went into there, and many people suffered as a result of that. But was it for massive destruction? I'm not even saying it was overtly wrong itself, but it had, they had to gin up support. They had to develop. They had to get you all on their side. So all of this stuff happens. We want something. We're going to take it, and then we're going to go for it. Then you have, after we win, everyone's saying, well... You're just there for the oil. So then people are, well, we're not doing the oil. And so all kinds of other naked, selfish ambition kicks into this. It's just this constant flow of sin manifesting itself in selfishness in our lives. The same is very true for Missio Dei Fellowship. 
He says the problems that are flowing from uh, the, the battles that are going on in the church are due to selfishness. And it's the same here as anywhere else. You're always having to deal with these things. If you're honest with yourself, you can look back on events in which youth acted that you now know was really just selfishness. Now, at the time, you didn't. At the time, you thought you were as pure as driven snow, right? You were the righteous one. Everyone else was wrong. But as you get older, you start to realize, no, it wasn't quite that clean. And why? Because we all carry that sin with us. Something didn't set well with you. You decided you have to act for righteousness sake. And so words are said, actions are performed, consequences come forth. And that can build and build until finally a war erupts in the church and the church splits. Many of you have experienced that in churches. We haven't had one in a long time in our church, but we certainly had them. And we will always have them. In fact, it's one of the things I'm constantly aware of, always testing the waters, always sniffing the air, if you will, checking to see if there's any of that kind of stuff happening. If you want to see the, the, uh, the guard come up, anytime I get a whiff or, or John gets a whiff of this, we, we, we're going to deal with it because we know how much it runs through the hearts of mankind. It's the same in a nation. So you give that thought then. When you hear of Hamas attacking Israel, or you hear of Russia attacking Ukraine, or some other situation you call evil, look at the Gulf War, the Civil War. What's going on in those tragedies? What's going on where all of those people have to die? I would argue that if you strip away all the words, you will find selfishness and sin in general driving them all. It's important to understand it's not a single strand of selfishness, but it's actually this twisted ball of a mess of strands of selfishness. So it's not just simple, it's complex because you're dealing with all of these different people and what they're going to get out of it. And so often problems then flow from words, ideas are all drawing from that same polluted source of sin. But we forget about it. We lie to ourselves, and so we forget that Proverbs says in, in chapter 10, verse 6, that the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And so we, we use words as a tool to manipulate wars. That's why every war has always been started with propaganda. Always. We start with a series of lies, and we start selling it until everyone's parodying the same thing, and then... Off we go, and we send our sons and daughters into battle out of these lies. I'm, I'm listening, not reading. Uh, I, I should be honest with that. I'm listening on tape the, the book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, uh, while I work in the, my wood shop, and it's a very fascinating read. It's both fascinating, though, and very worrying, because it's very similar. As you're reading what Hitler did, to rise up into power, you are watching it literally take place here in our nation. The exact same kinds of verbiage, creating enemies within among yourselves and creating a hatred, but it's all pumping out the selfish ambition. I've often said that you and I vote out of selfishness far more than our faith. We're big talkers. We talk one way, but we will almost always vote for what keeps us comfortable and safe. 
And so farmers vote to maintain subsidies, government employees and people working for various industries to, that feed the government machine. They vote to continue funding their programs that they're in. Politicians know that they have the purse strings, and so all they have to do is send enough money your way, and you will vote for them every day, all the time, because they keep you happy. We give up our rights, and we have done so in our nation in massive ways, simply so we can feel safe. The Patriarch is an evil, evil piece of legislation, but, oh yeah, we got past it. There's a reason when laws and spending packages get voted on that a whole host of other unrelated costs are attached to it. Have you ever noticed that? That we, we, we want Defense of the Nation Act. Yeah, we need to defend our nation and the borders. And unbeknownst to us, 15 million for abortion and 75 million for gay rights uh, legislation, on, on. And you're like, what is all this other stuff? Why? Because they know that you will happily hold your nose and vote for this vile legislation simply so that you get your little piece. It's the harsh reality. Selfish ambition is what drives all of us and it drives our nation as well. Because a nation and people groups do not have what they want or they think they deserve, plans get drawn up to go invade, propaganda goes into high gear, a specific message gets spread until we all agree to this course of action and we think we are in the right. Go backwards in the Bible to Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophet. So it's past Psalms. You get into Isaiah and then Jeremiah. Go to chapter 9. What's happening is Jeremiah has sent it to be a prophet of Israel. What a miserable job. He said, go and God says, I want you to go and speak to these people. I want you to call them to come back to me to repent from their sin. I will restore them. And he says, but they're not going to listen to you. What a miserable job that was, huh? I want you to go, and you're going to be hated by everybody and their message. Everyone will hate you for it, but you are to call them to repent. But I'm just telling you now, not one of them will. And so this is where we get the book of Jeremiah. And then Lamentations as he weeps over the destruction of this land. And so in chapter 1, uh, I mean 9, verse 1, he says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night. He's like, I do not possess enough emotion in my body to be able to mourn like it. I need to mourn as I see the destruction of the people. For the slain of the daughter of my people... Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place that I might leave my people and go for them. Why? For the, all of them are adulterers. A solemn assembly of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and unfaithfulness prevail in the land. For they go onward from evil to evil and they do not know me, declares Yahweh. He's like, I wish I could just abandon them somewhere. He can't. He made covenant with them. He will be found faithful even when they're unfaithful. But he, can you see the raw emotion of God speaking of his people? Let everyone beware of his neighbor. 
Do not trust any brother, because every brother surely supplants. Every neighbor goes about as a slander. Everyone deceives his neighbor, does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves, committing iniquity. What a sad statement. They get tired. They work so hard at sinning. Your habitation is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, declares Yahweh. Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, behold, I will refine them and test them for what else can I do? Because of the daughter of my people, their tongue is a slaughtering arrow. It speaks deceit with their, his mouth. One speaks peace to his nether, but inwardly he sets an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares Yahweh, on a nation such as this? Shall I not avenge myself? In verses 2 and following, he shows the cost of the righteous in the land of wickedness. In the midst of war, he, he, just, he says that there will be those who are the innocent because the, the nation has fallen and therefore God is bringing his judgment to them. But that doesn't mean that everyone will, uh, who is innocent will be exempt. Jeremiah is not exempt. Jeremiah is righteous. Jeremiah is holy before the Lord. Jeremiah has been set apart from the Lord, but he too is suffering the affliction of God's uh, judgment upon this nation. Innocent people will be caught up in all of this. And when you're in a war and you say, well, why do good people have to suffer in a war? Because that's war and that's sin. It just works that way. Everything gets screwed up and, and sin comes into the picture. In verses 4 and following, he, he says, we're not even to put our trust in our fellow countrymen because sin motivates the best of people. So you, you will say, oh, I'd never give up my mama. You'll give up your mama in a second if it means that you won't be tortured to death. And if you doubt me, you don't know your history. In communist China, in communist Russia, in Nazi Germany, Sons and daughters were giving up their moms and dads for all sorts of things. And in our own nation, we have this wonderful new campaign that's been going on for the last few years. If you see something, say something. And it's already being used for great evil. And we're like, well, no, we're just trying to be diligent. And are you really, do you really think that your government loves you that much? Do you really think that somehow? These people who are full of wickedness in their heart is somehow looking for your good, uh, your, yeah, just your good? No. And so he says, I have to act. I will punish these things. How is he going to punish them? By raising up nation after nation after nation to destroy them. War, in other words. All of what happens to the nation of Israel in this time all the way to fast forward to now is due to their sin. Go over backwards a few, a few pages to chapter 6. It's a long one, so I'm going to jump right away while you find it to reading it. Verses 1 through 16. I want you to see the way words and lies and true desires of the wicked heart bring about words of peace, but actually bring about violence. It, the prophet writes, Flee for safety, O sons of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Now blow up trumpet in Tekoa and raise a signal over Beth Hakarem, for evil looks down from the north. That's talking about a nation. 
as well as great destruction and comely, comely and delicate one, the daughter of Zion, I will ruin. So the northern nation, the Medo-Persian empire, they're looking and they're ready to come in and they're going to do their destruction. But who's the one doing it? It's God. I will destroy. I will destroy the daughter of Jerusalem. Shepherds and their flock will come to her. They will pitch their tents around her, describing the desolation. They will pasture each in his place. Set yourselves apart for war against her. Here he's commanding the nations to rise up and go against her. His people, arise, let us go up at noon. Woe to us for the day declines, for the shadows of the evening stretch out. Arise, let us go up by night, destroy her palaces. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, cut down her trees, cast up a siege against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished in whose midst there is only oppression. Like a well keeps its water fresh, so she keeps fresh her evil. Violence, devastation are heard in her. Sickness and wounds are continually before me. Heed discipline, O Jerusalem, lest my soul become disgusted at you, lest I make you a desolation, a land not inhabited. Thus says Yahweh of hosts. Uh, when it talks about the host, by the way, it speaks of armies. So it's Yahweh of the armies. They will pass thoroughly. They will thoroughly glean as a vine, the remnant of Israel. Pass your hand again like a grape gatherer over the branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot give heed. Behold, the word of Yahweh has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. But I am full of wrath of Yahweh. I am weary of holding it in. What a frightening statement when God says, I am sick and tired of holding it back. Pour it out on the infants in the street. Oh, Lord, you can't mean that. Yes, he does. And on the gathering of choice men together, for both husband and wife shall be captured, the aged with the one full of days. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields, their wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares Yahweh. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. There it is, that selfish ambition. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone practices lying. They've healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to feel dishonored. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Here's Israel under the judgment of God. It's, it's actually very brutal to picture because God is raising up nation after nation. The Assyrians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, Hamas. It continues to this day, this judgment God has placed upon this nation because they are his people and they have rejected his way. So he's faithful to his promise. If you will not follow my ways, I will curse you. And he looks and he says, you will be raped as a nation. And all the while people are 
crying out, peace, peace. He's like, there is no peace. Not until you come to the ancient paths, the old ways. You need to go back to your fathers of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You need to remember the words of Moses, and yet you will not listen. And the same issue is going on in every other nation. Because we are not a nation under God, even though our coinage says so, we never have been a nation under God. The reality is, is that we are rebels. And that as a result, our hearts are constantly looking away from God toward other things, and we yearn for it. The wicked works out their plans. I remember in history books, that the First World War was said to be the war to what? End all wars. 16 years later, Hitler rises. 16 years. Millions, tens of millions of people slaughtered. And it only took 16 years before it starts all over again. And all the while, we cry out, peace, peace. And there is no peace. And then you have the people who are afraid of war, and so they call themselves pacifists, but they're oftentimes just simply afraid of war. They're just looking for a way to to keep themselves safe. They're also driven by that same selfishness. They're afraid of losing everything, including their lives, and so they bargain, they bribe, they sell out just so they can survive one more day with all of their pretty things. Let me sum all this up here. War exists. Now listen, because this is important. I'm closing things up, but that doesn't mean I want you to shut off. War exists because sin exists. War exists because nations and people seek to satisfy sinful desires. But, now here's the question. Listen, does that make all war inherently evil? That's the question I want you to think about. I spent two weeks. It's sin is what drives war. Selfishness is a subset of sin. It drives war. So does that make then war inherently wrong or evil? Think about that. All violence is a result of sin. But does that make all violence sinful? And that's where it gets a little sticky. That's where it gets a little vague for us, and we don't know how to think through. So having spent two hours setting the stage, that's what I want to begin to unpack over the next few weeks as we work through it. All of this in mind, what are some possible conclusions we might have? Well, some might say that all war, because it's the result of sin, ought to be avoided by Christians. We should have nothing to do with it. We should just be separate. Others will say that though war is evil, it's really just a fruit of living in a fallen world, and though we ought to resist it, in fact, we should resist war to the point of actually partaking in war. In other words, it's so evil that you have to fight against it in war. Others might say that only certain wars should be joined and others should be avoided depending on the motives and the goals of the war, such as it's called the just war theory. Regardless, the hard reality is that war exists, and it exists in many forms and many ways, and you have to figure out how you're going to think about it because it does affect your life. If you don't, you will simply be carried along by whatever emotion you feel at the moment, and you become a very easy person to manipulate by those who have evil intentions. 
Beloved, here's, here's the whole point, though. In Revelation 20, we won't go there because time is gone, but Revelation 20, it says that Christ has been raising, reigning for a thousand years in Jerusalem. This is in the end. And, and at the end of that, he releases Satan from imprisonment. He deceives the nations. They gather around Jerusalem and Christ, and they're going to go and seek to destroy the saints, it says. And it says that as they, it's called the Great War. And, and on that day, fire from heaven comes and devours them, and the end is finally here. And God makes all things new, and sin and death is cast into the lake of fire, and that's the end of war. And so there's a war right there. And so the question is, until that day, should we expect peace? And until that day, what do we do when we're in a war or we're called to become part of a war? And that's what we'll look at over the next few weeks. Let's pray. Father, we can debate war all we wish. But all that really matters ultimately is who is Jesus Christ? Because he is the one who will bring all of this to an end. And, and so, in reality, what we ought to do is echo the words of John the Apostle in the book of Revelation when he says, Come, Lord, quickly. Father, I pray that you will turn our hearts from the, the deceptions of this age and this day. We yearn for things that ought not to be yearned for. We, we think of things that are not ours to have. And then we fight and we grumble and we commit great evil. I pray that you will sanctify our hearts and set it apart so that we might see you for who you are, the God of hosts, that we'd entrust ourselves to you, who sees all things pure, that you are the one who will set all things right, and that no matter what comes our way, that we would be like Christ who, while on cross, did not hurl hatred at those doing evil toward him, but that we'd be a blessing we'd show kindness, and we'd speak truth. Open our eyes to this. Help us to see how that works in the weeks to come. I ask in your son's name, amen.